Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Ambassador Fred Hoff about his new book, Reaching for the Heights, which chronicles his efforts to mediate a peace between Syria and Israel from 2009 until 2011. Then, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about mediation in the region. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Ambassador Fred Hoff is a diplomat in residence at Bard College. He has a long and distinguished government career as a foreign area officer of the U.S. Army and as a diplomat working on resolving difficult territorial conflicts in the Levant, often working closely with former Senate Majority Leader George Mitchell. He's the author of the recently published book, Reaching the Heights, the inside story of a secret attempt to reach a Syrian-Israeli peace. Fred, welcome to Babel. John, it is wonderful to be with you. I'm an admirer of Babel, and I recommend it to my students all the time. That's very kind. Fred, what's the secret attempt for Syrian-Israeli peace that you write about in the book? It's about an attempt I made between April uh, 09 and March 2011 to build a foundation for and ultimately broker Syria-Israel peace. It was largely a back-channel effort in the sense that it was not publicized, especially when it got to the point, John, where the two relevant leaders, Bashar al-Assad and Benjamin Netanyahu, were personally engaged in this effort. On Netanyahu's part in particular, there was a strong disinclination for this to see the light of day, certainly in the preliminary stages. Therefore, it was a secret attempt at mediation, one that sadly came crashing down beginning in the middle of March 2011, when the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, elected to use overwhelming deadly force against peaceful protesters. That, That convinced everybody else in the process that Assad was losing his legitimacy and really would not be in a position to speak for Syrians on matters of war and peace. Now, I was surprised to learn from the book that this not only wasn't your first time in Syria, but you had spent time as an American field service exchange student (laughs) in Syria in 1964. This was like a million years ago. What was Syria like in 1964? And when you went back to Syria as a professional diplomat, how did you feel the country had changed? The country, I thought, had changed enormously. Certainly Damascus had changed physically. I can remember being in Syria around 1980 as a military officer and staying at the Sheraton Hotel where there was a photo exhibit of Damascus during Ottoman times, early 20th century. And as I looked at that exhibit, it looked to me like the Damascus of 1964 where by 1980, Damascus was being transformed physically, becoming a much more congested city. Also, I would say in 1964, for me, with no background in the Middle East at all at the time, this was like a visit to the far side of Neptune. Syrian politics at the time were rather unstable. There was a Ba'athist government in power 
to stretch the meaning of that phrase, but, but vulnerable constantly to a potential coup d'etat. Coups were happening quite often in those days. Indeed, the exchange students in Damascus the previous year, 63, had had to lay low when a coup d'etat took place. By the 21st century, Syria had acquired a system that was scientifically quite advanced in terms of repression. When Hafez al-Assad took over the country in 1970, he made it his business to wire the system in such a way that it would be very, very, very difficult to mount any kind of internal challenge to his rule. So I would say politically, that was the biggest change between 1964 and 2009 when I began this effort. There's been a tendency in the last 30 years for people with close ties to Israel to be at senior levels of U.S. peacemaking efforts in the Middle East. And that was in contrast to the previous 40 years where the opposite was the case. If you were to put together a dream team to pursue Arab-Israeli peace, what would it look like? I think a dream team trying to work on Syria-Israel peace or Arab-Israel peace generally has to consist of people who are genuinely empathetic to the demands and needs of both sides and genuinely curious about the positions of both sides. The most effective diplomat I ever witnessed in this respect was former Secretary of State James Baker under George H.W. Bush. Baker was intensely curious about the politics of his interlocutors as he put together various grand coalitions and a Madrid conference and so forth. His curiosity was insatiable. I think this is what's needed on the Israeli-Palestinian front. You're dealing with a situation where each side considers itself to be the righteous victim of the other side. And trying to mediate a situation like that without understanding, without curiosity, without empathy, without the willingness to do all the homework is asking for an exercise in total futility. Now, one of the strong figures in the book and somebody you really clearly admire is Dennis Ross. He had a remarkable run in government, senior positions running back to the Reagan administration. You work closely with Dennis. First, why do you think he's been so successful? And second, what do you think his principal successes have been? And what do you think the most important misjudgments he's made have been? My personal experience with Dennis was very positive. It started out actually on the uh, Israeli-Palestinian front when George Mitchell asked me to team up with Dennis to oversee security-related conversations. In other words, if there is going to be a two-state solution, what are the security implications? What has to be done to ensure that both sides feel secure? Who's going to run the airspace? What kind of arrangements are there going to be down in the Jordan Valley? What kind of security structure would Palestine have? I found Dennis to be an excellent interlocutor and co-chair of that effort, which I think was making some serious progress. On the Syria front, it was Dennis's relationship with Chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at the time, uh, John Kerry of Massachusetts that gave me a way forward. Dennis, as you mentioned, has a long history 
in these efforts, I think he would acknowledge, I think he has acknowledged quite explicitly that his efforts on the Syria-Israel track in the 1990s fell short. And I think what he saw in 2010 was an opportunity to repair some of that because he knew that his strength was really on the Israeli side of the ledger, his relationships with Netanyahu and others. I think he saw that given my relationships with Syrian leaders, there could be a more balanced and effective attempt to get these parties together around a set of basic principles that then could evolve into an agreement and the agreement's implementation. Now, you mentioned your relationship with Syrian leaders. You had a number of conversations with Bashar al-Assad. What did you make of him? And what did you make of his turn in March 2011 that you referred to? I have to say, John, there was nothing in my encounters with Bashar al-Assad, either in the company of George Mitchell or one-on-one, that gave me any indication or any clue that I was dealing with someone who would, in the fullness of time, emerge as the premier war criminal, at least to date, of the 21st century. Assad was cordial. He was businesslike. Particularly in the presence of Mitchell, he gave the occasional impression of being eager to please. There was nothing in his performance that was the least bit indicative of what was to come. Saying that, none of us, not me, not Mitchell, no member of my team, had any illusion about the nature of the Syrian system. I did not consider Assad to be a reformer. But there was no doubt about the nature of the regime over which he presided. I must say that when the violence began, I had some skepticism about who was actually responsible for what, because Assad had given me every indication that he was completely serious about the peace mediation effort, that he wanted to see it brought to a successful conclusion. He knew that that successful conclusion would involve the gradual lifting of American economic sanctions, something he was very, very interested in. So it surprised me when the violence persisted, thereby killing what I thought had been a very promising mediation effort. One of the threads in your book is the role of history. And that fact is often remembered very differently by two sides of a conflict. How did you research the history of Syria's borders? And did you find that your negotiating partners came to accept your history? The fundamental Syrian objective was the restoration of all land lost to Israel in June 1967, all the way down to what the Syrians labeled the line of June 4th, 1967. This is something that I researched. I remember attending a meeting at the Middle East Institute in 1998 or so, and people were throwing this term around. And I asked the question, what is meant by line of June 4th, 1967? I really didn't get a satisfactory answer from the experts, so I decided to research it myself and make a real effort to describe in words and on a map a line 
that was not a boundary. It was not an armistice line. It was not even marked on the ground. It was a line that separated Israeli and Syrian forces down in the Jordan Valley, actually a bit west of the Golan Heights, in the Jordan Valley on the eve of war in 1967. Over time, I think Prime Minister Netanyahu fully understood that complete Israeli withdrawal over time to this line was the price Israel was going to have to pay in order for Netanyahu to achieve his objective of complete Syrian strategic reorientation away from Iran, away from Hezbollah, away from Hamas. So I think there was agreement by both sides that my depiction, which appeared in a 1999 book of the line of June 4th, was fundamentally correct. But of course, there would be detailed meter by meter surveying ultimately if this process were to come to something looking like completion. Mediation has been a theme through a lot of your career. And I'm wondering first how you were drawn to it. And was this something that if I met Fred Hoff in 1964 in Damascus, I'd say the guy has the makings of a mediator or is it something you fell into later in your career? John, I don't think that there was anything in my career as a teenager that would have necessarily indicated any propensity toward mediation or diplomacy in general. It's something I came to almost accidentally when I was leaving the army. My former superior in the Pentagon, a former assistant secretary of defense, Richard Armitage, had been asked by Secretary of State Baker to mediate an Israeli-Jordanian dispute about a dam on the Yarmouk River. Jordan wanted to build the dam. The World Bank wanted to finance the dam. The problem was Israel had some fundamental objections to this thing being built. And the World Bank had gone to Baker and said, can you help us out here? Baker turned to Armitage and said, would you like to head a mediation team and see if we can sort this out? And Armitage, knowing that I was retiring from the military, recruited me. I had actually written a paper on Arab-Israeli water disputes as a grad student. So I became the so-called expert on the team. And this was my first attempt. And lots of lessons learned, as some in the category of how not to do it in the <laughs> first experience. I thought your final chapter was remarkably thoughtful and self-critical. And one of the things you're most self-critical about was about focusing too much on winning support in Jerusalem and Damascus and not enough on winning support in Washington. Yes. You've spent decades working in Washington. Why do you think Washington was such a hard target on this set of issues? And why hadn't you fully appreciated that? I took it face value, John, President Obama's commitment to comprehensive Arab-Israeli peace, which at least in terms of the immediate neighborhood meant Israelis, Palestinians, that is the heart of the conflict. It meant Israel, Syria. It meant Israel, Lebanon. The president had spoken several times about it. I had no doubt from uh, Special Envoy George Mitchell that this was his mission, comprehensive peace. 
almost all of the attention in terms of media, in terms of interagency deliberations within the administration, almost all of the attention went to Mitchell's effort to get Bibi Netanyahu and Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, together to put together a two-state agreement. I was left free of a lot of interagency interference, rudder direction, daily guidance. This worked very much to my advantage until the very end when I had key meetings with Assad on the 28th of February, 2011, two evenings later with Bibi Netanyahu and his team. And it looked as if we had engineered a breakthrough. It looked like we were going to be able, within a month's time, perhaps six weeks, to convene the parties for proximity discussions and perhaps direct discussions, uh, likely in an Eastern European capital. But what I was finding was that my reports of apparent success were met with silence in the White House. And then when the violence began in Syria, I strongly recommended, and Dennis Ross carried this recommendation in the White House, that President Obama reach out to Assad telephonically and say, look, unless the violence stops, unless you have a way to put things back together diplomatically and stop the killing of civilians, this mediation is going to go away and your prospects of recovering the Golan and associated territory may go away totally. That never happened. That recommendation was rejected, apparently for domestic political reasons, the fear of being seen as reaching out to a dictator like Assad. And it began to occur to me, John, that I was really paying the price for the operational freedom I had in molding this mediation, that the White House itself was not fully committed to it, even in volume one of his splendid autobiography. Barack Obama, he doesn't mention the Syrian mediation, and he conflates all of comprehensive peace into Israel-Palestine. Okay, so I came to the conclusion, and I tried to articulate it as accurately as I could in the book, that among my failures in this process was to make sure that the administration was just as committed as I was to making this happen. And if it wasn't, I would have stopped my efforts, and I would not have led the parties to believe that President Obama was vitally interested in making this happen. That's an important irony that if you have freedom of action, you don't have support in Washington. If you have support in Washington, you don't really have freedom of action. At least in that particular administration, because what George Mitchell encountered increasingly during his tenure was a great deal of micromanagement from the interagency and particularly in the White House staff. I think the NSC staff was unnecessarily activist in many of the details of what Mitchell was trying to do. You're right. This is the irony. I was spared all of that, but I paid the price because when the chips were down, we could not get the president to take a shot at preserving the mediation. Fred Hoff, author of Reaching for the Heights, thank you for joining us on Babel. John, it's been an honor to be with you. 
Next, John, Natasha, and I continue the conversation about mediation in the Middle East. In the interview, John, you made a really good point towards the end. After Ambassador Hoff said that he had a great deal of operational freedom in his negotiations, but that he didn't have kind of that push from the top when he needed it. You pointed out that was a bit of an irony because when you have that freedom of operation, you tend not to have that ability to have buy-in from Washington. And when you have buy-in from Washington, you don't always have that operational freedom. So I was wondering if we could dive a bit into that and kind of take it into other areas of the region. I guess, where have we seen that dynamic kind of play out across the region? We've certainly seen it consistently in Arab-Israeli negotiations, and the U.S. has been involved in Arab-Israeli negotiations for decades. And one of the important things has always been, can you keep the leadership engaged? And one of the things that Fred Hoff is very complimentary about in the book is Dennis Ross. And Dennis Ross has always been a master at bringing along the senior leadership he needed to make the negotiating deals he wanted to. As a negotiator, if you speak for your boss, you have leverage. And if you don't speak for your boss, you have no leverage. And I think what Fred was reflecting was on the one hand, is it's nice to be doing something that doesn't get all the attention, but he felt in retrospect that he never spent the time cultivating the support he needed in Washington to get the policy he was trying to deliver. There's an interesting book by Edmund Hull, who was the ambassador to Yemen right after 9-11. And he talks about, on the one hand, he was able to talk to Washington about counterterrorism in Yemen, but he was never able to widen the aperture. And therefore, when Washington moved off a counterterrorism focus on Yemen, he found there was no way to engage Washington at all on issues he thought were vital to fighting counterterrorism in Yemen, which was working on the genuine development of the country. Yeah, I think that this comes into play a lot. Even when you see a lot of buy-in for a specific line of effort. We've seen with this administration sort of the reinvigoration of the JCPOA being a priority. And so you have all of the buy-in, but you still have all of the baggage and the constraints and the political issues that are holding back this administration and those negotiations. And so even when you have that buy-in, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be smooth sailing. I think when Washington has great ambitions and there is this sort of can-do attitude, it's not easily swayed, but sometimes it's knocked down by realities on the ground. And then when there isn't that determination, there's realities that might be ignored on the ground, but they still might come up to knock the United States down. Have there ever been scenarios where there has been buy-in from Washington, but that Washington realized that you really needed a person like Ambassador Hoff on the ground to have that freedom? What would that look like? There certainly have been times when, for example, Secretary of State Baker was talking with the Assads, and I'm sure he had some buy-in from the president, but also had freedom to move. I think I would imagine there have been times in the Iran negotiations that have been off again, on again for the last 15 years or so that there have been times when negotiators said, well, let me see what I can get in the ground and I'll try to, to make sure I can get Washington's buy-in later. Oftentimes people in Washington will say, well, you can explore it, but I'm not sure it'll be a really helpful line of effort. And then, you know, ultimately our political system is one where the people who get elected are the ones who have the ultimate decision-making power. And as a lot of people who've worked in the White House have told me, you're the president's the one who got elected. 
And I was at an event with Jake Sullivan a couple of months ago, and he said the exact same thing. You'd be surprised how many times the president says, we're not going to do that, regardless of what the whole NSC process has produced and all the experts and everything else. The president is the one who got elected. The president's the one who's held responsible, will be held responsible by the voters, and the president gets the ultimate say. Yeah, but I think also it was interesting that Ambassador Hoff was talking about this interagency process, too. And the fact that there are sort of a lot of cooks in the kitchen, there is this final decider in the president, but he also has to keep domestic politics in mind. He has to keep Congress in mind to a certain extent. And that sort of, I think, depends on how controversial or how important those particular mediating efforts are, or even those reform efforts are. In the case of Israel-Palestine, obviously, it's been a priority for decades for the United States until fairly recently. But in other cases, perhaps an Ambassador Hoff could do a lot more on the ground and get buy-in because there just wasn't as much investment in Congress or domestically speaking. But I think in general, the strength of the U.S. does lie in the strength of its institutions and processes. But I think also the failures of the U.S. can lie in sort of the inflexibility of those institutions and processes, or as Jean was saying, as a single executive. And you know, trying to sway them in either direction could also be a significant factor in holding somebody back. John, you kind of mentioned in your first answer about how Ambassador Hoff said that he didn't really try to cultivate that buy-in from Washington. And that was one of his regrets from the negotiations. Thinking back to that, what would that cultivation look like? What would it look like for Ambassador Hoff to really try to cultivate that buy-in? He would have needed to not only talk with the president and other cabinet officials, but keep them apprised, keep them informed, make them feel engaged, ensure that they're supportive. I mean, there's a lot of care and feeding of people's views to make sure that they remain supportive. And as I said, from what I've heard, Dennis Ross has been a master at winning the confidence of senior people. Henry Kissinger was a master at winning the confidence of the president that he can go off and do things. Other people don't always have the confidence of the president, or you can have people who don't have the confidence of the Secretary of State, or senior officials say, well, maybe go see what you can do, and then I'll decide. It's not just answering the mail. It's not just filing the reports. It's building a relationship of trust with the right people. I think there's a way in which a lot of us, and certainly the think tank community, you think the problem is finding the right answer and give people the right answer. But having the right answer If you can't produce the right action, having the right answer without being able to persuade the principle that indeed it's the right answer is a pyrrhic victory. People who are effective in government are not only effective because they have the right answer, they're effective because they can get people to act appropriately based on the right answer. And that's a whole different skill set from having the right answer. That reminds me a lot about what we try to do here in terms of shaping what we find and trying to make it really palatable for an audience and grab attention. So I want to take this into another area. I think there's overlap with what Ambassador Hoff was talking about. And one thing that struck me from the interview was the fact that Ambassador Hoff had experience in Syria from a study abroad program in high school, way before he ever worked on Syria professionally. And the interview touched on that a bit, but I wanted to ask your thoughts on what you think those experiences help you see and do 
while you're abroad in a different country that can better inform the kind of work you do professionally later on in your career. And I guess the importance of that. Well, unsurprisingly, I enjoyed what Fred said about this need for empathy and curiosity. I think that kind of experience helps with both of those things. And it could definitely keep you invested in what may be very well years or even decades of long efforts at you know mediation. I think in the case of Syria and many places without a free press as well, I simply don't know how you can really understand the complicated dynamics under the surface without living there. And that's the thing. If I had just visited Syria for tourism, I might have seen Damascus and Palmyra and sort of been on my way and said, this is a beautiful country. If I had just read a book, I might think this is just a dictatorship. What would anyone want to preserve? And I think the answer is more complicated than either of those pictures. And if you get to know people over time, you get to understand that dichotomy better and people enjoy their lives. But there's also a certain banality to the oppression that you might not see without living there and without gaining people's trust. No, and Natasha, as somebody who's half Jordanian, who's been going back and forth to Jordan for most of your life, that's given you a sense of nuance in addition to a sense of connectedness and intimacy with a complexity. And it seems to me that one of the main things you learn from living in a place for months or, or years is you learn a little bit of humility. You learn it's not all as simple as it seems. You learn that people are complicated. And partly sometimes you learn a little bit about how to get people to trust you, about how to judge people, about how to differentiate between what people say and what they mean. But it seems to me that there is that sort of empathy and curiosity. But the other part that's often very hard is a sense of humility, that there's a way we come to problems. We say, okay, here's the problem and here's the solution. Why don't you just do it? And I think that there's something that comes from living in a place, especially as a non-official American, learning a language and having the struggle with being misunderstood, is it teaches you just how much you still have to learn. And I think however much you understand, having in mind how much you still don't understand, to my mind, is really important to be effective understanding where the opportunities are and understanding how you can move people in a useful direction. You don't want everybody on the team to be exactly like that, but having somebody on the team who can play that role, I think is very important. Thank you, John and Natasha for joining me. Thank you, Caleb. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.